Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. You are probably familiar with the fact that the brain has a left and a right hemisphere, which over the course of evolution, they have developed very different perspectives on the world and they have different capabilities and they create two very different sense of who we are, our sense of self. So your left brain, uh, which is in almost in the bulk of us, the dominant hemisphere, creates what's called uh, spotlight attention. It focuses your attention on specific objects which it looks to accumulate, grasp, manipulate the world. It's um, focused with um, consuming or acquiring objects that are useful to survival. For example, if you were a bird, your left hemisphere would be focused on uh, in uh, the ground finding food or stuff that I suppose you could build a nest from. And so you'd have to be able to specifically find objects that were useful to you and separated from the background. So the left, that's what the left brain does. It looks at the world for to, to find specific objects that it has predetermined. And uh, over the course of evolution, the left hemisphere became the, not only the host of very spotlight, fixated um, uh, attention, looking for specific things. In human beings, it became the host of language, advanced language skills. And in the left hemisphere, the temporal lobe became far greater in size. And um, the left brain develops much later in life. It's in the background for our first three or four years. Um, slowly developing a familiarity with language. To your left hemisphere, by the time you're an adult, uh, is a kind of an ivory tower which lives in this very sort of abstract, representational world that doesn't actually mirror the real world out there. It turns the world out there into words and stories and uh, narratives. Um, this Hemisphere of the brain creates what we could call, and has been called, in fact, in psychology, the self-concept, otherwise known as your identity. It's the stories that you tell about yourself, the autobiography that you repeat about the important events of your life. It's the words that conjure up whenever you hear your name. So it's a, it's a linkage of language or ideas, words, with, with you know, your name, or if you see an image of yourself, the story you might tell. When you meet someone, it's, and somebody asks uh, to talk about yourself, what's been going on, what's important to you, when you're meeting someone, you would focus on your self-concept. Now, the right brain is creates an entirely different kind of awareness, uh, significantly different. It's uh, a very broad, um, it doesn't focus and and spotlight objects and separate them from the world. The right brain is vigilant and doesn't have any preconceived ideas of what it's looking for and isn't concerned with consuming or acquiring objects. Your right brain is a vigilant, uh, open, awareness that looks for threats and also looks for how connected you are to other people that create a sense of security. Your emotional attachments with attachment figures, loved ones, parents, is essentially uh, uh, governed by your right brain. Your right brain develops first in life. Your first three years of life, you are almost entirely right hemispheric in 
that all of your connections and communications and the bonds that you build are emotional. The right brain is embodied. It doesn't. It's not primarily language based. It's uh, it, its core drive is to connect and establish security, and it does that. Uh, it is the absolute foundational uh, hemisphere that we spend the first three or four years of our life. And then at around age five, there's this migration where we're no longer bonding and connecting through looks and touch and laughter and facial expressions where our connections are now governed by language in the left hemisphere. And that switch from the right to the left allows us to establish narrative memories, stories that we tell about ourselves. Now this right hemispheric self is very different. It's not a self-concept or an identity based on stories or ideas we have about ourselves. This is a felt self. This is the feelings you have when you see yourself in the mirror. So whereas your identity is based on the thoughts you have when you look at yourself or somebody asks you about yourself, the stories of your achievements, you might, like me, have a mixture of um, when the self-concept is a mixture of, you know, uh, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a neurotic, you know, guy who loves psychology, you know, who grew up in the Lower East Side and now has been living in Williamsburg for the last 25 years, you know, that's a story, that's a self-concept. It's based on these very static identity things. But the self, the felt self, the core self is fluid, it changes. I might look in the mirror one day and go, you know, and my stomach might get tight and I might not feel very big or confident. And other days I might look in the mirror, see my image and feel expansive and strong and a sense of I can do things and people might actually like me. So it's a fluid, but this core self, as opposed to the self-concept, which is language and ideas, the felt sense of the core self is developed over countless long interactions with other people where we either get attention and uh, where people look at us with kindness or they don't, where we reach out for love and we either get it or we don't, and over time, it, it, it creates a felt sense of um, an embodied sense of who we are. So you walk into, for instance, a party and you might have a self-concept of, oh, I've got so much going on in my life. I'm busy with work and I've got these obligations in my life and I have to, and I'm trying out for this project. But your felt self, your core self might be anxious or uncomfortable, or you might feel very small at that moment. So sometimes there's a complete disagreement between the two. We're, we're obviously uh, going back and forward between the right brain and the left brain and between the felt self and the self-concept all the time. Um, Again, the, 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 the felt self, this core self, is established first in life due to the nonverbal interactions between a child and its parents. The child begins to have a feeling of whether it's lovable and whether to expect the best of other people. And that felt self is carried in the body. A, a child that has a robust sense of self makes eye contact. Its shoulders and its chest are open, its belly is soft. She looks at herself in the mirror and she dances and smiles and uh, she feels this sense of joy. A child that grows up in constantly um, an abandoning situation or she's separated from a caregiver or the caregivers are constantly caught up in their own anxiety, that child looks at herself at times and doesn't feel that lovable or that strong and it creates a felt sense of 
expecting abandonment. She no longer makes eye contact as easily, or she, in certain situations, she becomes contracted and anxious when her the people she depends on are uh, unavailable. Uh, so natural selection created a left hemisphere that's far larger. But in addition to that, uh, then over time in our culture, we have become, we wound up living what Ian McGrillchrist, a great neuropsychologist, says, in a suspiciously left hemispheric world. Our institutions, our educational systems constantly reward us for reciting and knowing and embracing our self-concept, the stories about ourselves. So they emphasize things like reciting facts, doing well on tests, achieving uh, uh, test scores, uh, getting grades, moving from one grade to another grade, and all of that people are start being assigned numbers and uh, aptitudes and essentially this process is one the self-concept because it's based in language and numbers and identities and achievements <coughs> separate us from others that's the core of our self-concept what makes us unique and what makes us different the right brain felt self is actually based on what makes us connected and makes us not different and what removes our sense of isolation. Our felt self is I either feel well connected to others and then I will have a body that has a certain robust, strong, opening, uh, uh, embracing states of being or I will not feel that. I will feel lonely, isolated, maybe at times cut off, and my body and my feelings will get tighter and smaller and I will feel contracted. So all of the, the felt self is not based on what separate, what, what identifies me and makes me unique. It's actually based on how connected and similar and how accepted by others and how a part of others I feel. So they're actually they're actually pulling us in two very different directions. One is a story about what makes me a unique person. And it, the, the self-concept, the left brain story, actually has us fixated on our reputation. What, is, what, what, did, what did he say about me? Fuck, fuck that. You know, or they said that about me? Oh, that's so nice. That's a attempt to curate our reputation is a is nothing other than an attempt to curate our self-concept in the eyes of other people the stories the thoughts that other people have about us we rarely don't ask not we ask what other people said about us or what other people think about us but the we pay very little attention in our culture about, we don't ask kids in school all the time, how are you feeling today? What's going on? Are you feeling uh, tired, energetic, lonely? Are you feeling, uh, what's going on internally with you? So over time, we begin to identify more and more and more with this self-concept and, and peer relationships we start identifying, oh, she's she's weird, he's dumb, she, you know, she's a bully. I was always, oh, that guy's a stoner. That was that was what I was known as, you know, a kid who listened to uh, Sabbath. Oops, I gotta move this. Listens to Sabbath and uh, smokes pot all the time. So we're given identities, and these identities are they're sticky. They're not fluid like feelings. They're not, they're words, they're not embodied states. So as I was saying, very often our, this felt self, this core self that's based on feelings can be in accordance with our self-concept. We might look in the mirror and not feel very good and then launch in all this negative self-talk. But very often they're incompatible. 
people who have chronic self-esteem failures due to early maladaptive attachment structures in their life where they didn't they didn't have caregivers that established secure bonds they don't they don't have a when they look in the mirror they don't feel ever very good they feel deflated and or they feel nothing at all and so they compensate for this this damaged core self by creating a grandiose self-concept based on like our president you know these constant stories of achievement and how important and how you know powerful because they are compensating or masking a completely wounded utterly deflated small tiny I don't feel anything about myself that doesn't mean I sympathize with him by the way <laughs> I just can spot a narcissist when I see one um, of course that strategy doesn't work the more many people try to talk themselves or achieve themselves uh, uh, try to achieve or accumulate uh, as a way to compensate for a damaged felt core self that's why so many people get, you know caught up in binges of shopping and accumulation and uh, why so many people are driven uh, to establish uh, very uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, shiny careers because they're trying to address a wounded self but then we see all the time people who achieve uh, astonishing degrees of success and still kill themselves because none of that heals the damaged core self the feelings so um, they're very different in many ways the way you feel about yourself versus the way the stories you talk and tell about yourself and in our culture we tend to focus far too much on the identities the stories what's going on with you what have you been up to and we pay precious little interest in the felt core authentic what am I feeling when I when I think or when I look at myself in the mirror or when I, I have an opportunity what happens internally do I feel a sense of oh there's something missing uh, or I, I could never do that so self-transcendence and this brings us to the whole point and transpersonal psychology which is what Buddhist psychology falls under uh, I do a mix of transpersonal and attachment-based Buddhist counseling but um, so self-transcendence and transpersonal psychology is the ability to put aside for a while entirely our self-concept that's put aside all the stories we tell about ourselves who we are what separates us what makes us unique all the things we've accomplished all the things that makes us better or worse than we believe anything that identifies us as different it's the ability to put that aside and to turn to connect with what we would call the felt self the core self the feelings of how connected we are with the universe with other people around us with a, a tribal community the goal of transpersonal and self-transcendence is to heal the felt self and to liberate us at times from the identity stories now you can't always escape that if you go to a new you know you're at a new project that you're freelancing and somebody says oh hi who are you and you say oh I am a member of the universe connected <laughs> today when I looked in the mirror I felt I felt a sense of pride opening up my chest a sense of energy in my body so the fluidly right now I've moved to this place of feeling a greater sense of wholeness and bondedness with you they might 
struggle to figure out how you're going to fit in with the project <laughs> So we do need to have, to a certain degree, an identity. It's, it's, it's partially one. It's partially how we survive in terms of making, uh, you know, uh, somewhat of an income. Uh, when we inter interact with people, it's very difficult to feel safe enough at first to talk about your felt self, your core internal fluid states that you go through when in different situations of your life. The goal of um, uh, transpersonal and self-transcendence is largely achieved through very often spiritual practices that lead to what is sometimes referred to as mystical states. Anything that gets the word mystical, by the way, or transcendent, or sacred, or you know, any of those words is indicating that it's not based on the self-concept. It's not based on achievements. It's not based on things you can consume. It's not based on identity. It's based on some felt experience nonverbal events in your life that makes you feel a greater sense of connection. So it's entirely right hemispheric. It involves very often, uh, of, of course it can involve in a, in a setting, it can involve mindfulness practice, meditation, it can involve guided visualizations. In Certain people would attend uh, self-transcendence through chanting. Uh, that's a, in uh, uh, Nikirin, I think it is, Buddhism, that's a big deal, that's a big deal, and uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Um, trance music, dancing in crowds creates a sense of self-transcendence because we are now feeling bonded and a part of when we play music with other people, we feel a sense of self-transcendence. It's no longer what separates me, what makes me unique. Oh, I'm a bass player. You know, it's about being a part of a fluid exchange of emotions. When we are uh, making art in any form, we are in a self-transcendent because we are not at that moment fixated in our stories, our identities would separate us the language, the narration of our life. We are in a, a very moment-by-moment moment, uh, connected experience. The self-concept is always based on stories from my past, and it creates pathologies and achievements. The felt self is always based on this timeless present. It's always based on now. How do I feel now? Do I feel connected? Do I feel part of? Do I feel bonded or do I not? McGilchrist, again, the uh, famous neuropsychologist, says that, uh, I'm quoting from his work on the bilateral brain, says, imagination, creativity, the capacity for awe, music, dance, poetry, art, love of nature, a moral sense, all of these uh, are in most cases the and in most cases the principal part is played by the right hemisphere, the right frontal lobe, and that, by the way, is the domain of the felt self. So all and transcendent states connects us to again something that completely uh, pulls us out of the identity stories, the inner biographies, the stories we hold about ourselves, and the concerns about what other people think about us, and connect us with a timeless present that has fluid feelings and fluid sense of interaction with other people. It's never based on what makes us unique or different. It's always based on what makes us feel either connected or not. Dasher Keltner, who's a famous psychologist, uh, says um, when we uh, are in a state of awe, we not only connect with something much larger than our limited sense of self, it encourages us to collaborate and bond with other people. When people experience some form of transcendence, it's when they, they feel most connected to the world, most connected to, the, to a sense of 
something larger and with others. He says, uh, thinking shifts from me to we when we experience awe or transcendence in our life. The dissolving of self-fixation, says the the psychologist Paul Piff, allows us to act generously, ethically, fairly, and in so doing, reduces our levels of cytokines, which uh, contribute to depression and anxiety. So we actually feel better. We feel safer. We feel more connected when we put aside this fixation on our identity, our story, our achievements, what separates us. The entirety of the Dharma, and I would argue all great spiritual paths, Hinduism, uh, Islam, all great spiritual paths, you know, have uh, some focus on self-transcendence, getting us beyond the narrow identity beliefs. The Dharma does this through its constant emphasis on upending uh, where we pay our attention. The very foundation of the Dharma is uh, one of the foundations. It's called the Four Foundations of uh, Mindfulness. And what the Buddha does in this is he flips our attention. He's, while most of our life we're most aware of our ideas, our thoughts, our inner narrative, And then after that, we're somewhat aware of our emotions and then even belief that our feelings and then lastly, our breath and our, you know, just the ambient body states. The Buddha flips that on its head and he said, while you're being mindful, you are first and foremost aware of your breath, your body, and then the feelings that are happening, you know, especially the front of your body that create an underpinning and then the emotional states of your mind. And lastly, when you're mindful, the last thing is you pay attention to what kind of thoughts are happening, but you don't identify with your thoughts. Mindfulness is meant to be a complete compensation for the way we normally live, which is when we walk around in our lives or we spend our lives uh, in any interaction, probably when you entered this room, after an initial just feeling, do I feel comfortable here, you then focused on a spot to sit and you started having thoughts. Oh, I don't know, is this going to be good? You know, I don't know what this talk's going to be, blah, blah, blah. You started narrating it. And so the fixation, this, the attention switched from a momentary awareness of how you felt in relation to this entire experience into this very narrow, okay, I'm here in this corner, I'm different from all these people, Uh, probably they all know how to meditate really well, and I'm probably gonna have a busy, anxious mind, and you know. So we move from a a felt self into a narrow self-concept that made us feel smaller, more vulnerable, more distant and different from the people around us, and the goal is to upend that. So one of the ways the Buddha suggested is in a bunch of practices known as shunaka, or emptying the mind of these narrow, very identity beliefs, what he called um, ditti upadana, clinging to the stories, and uh, atava upadana, clinging to the beliefs about ourselves. The goal is to have practices that would connect us to something that is far larger, far more spacious. So in the meditation we'll be doing, we're going to be doing one of the oldest, the Kula Sanyata. And this is a meditation where instead of focusing on all the beliefs and narratives and stories that make us feel unique and different from other people, that make us feel alone or special. We're going to focus on reflections and recollections that actually connect us with everyone and then connect us with the earth and then connect us even with the unending 
universe as it was that expands beyond us in all directions. <laughs> I hope that was interesting in some small way. And now what we're going to do is um, we are going to have a meditation together. Find a super comfortable, relaxed position. And take a moment to stretch if you need to. Uh, if you need to, uh, you know, lift an arm or you know, just extend your back. And then close your eyes and allow your body just to sway a little bit from side to side still. And then without any intervention of your conscious mind, which is predominantly left hemispheric, allow your felt experience, which is guided by the right brain, it guides balance, Allow just your body to find an upright position where you don't think yourself into it. You just feel. So try to let go of any story or image or idea of what's correct. And then whatever position you wind up in, gently lift your chin up a bit. Like you're looking at a, uh, like a tense top of a 10-story building and we're just putting this tiny little bit of effort in so that we won't slouch. Take a full in-breath through the nose and while you breathe in, squinch the muscles of the face, the forehead, tighten the, the nose, clench the jaw, tighten the micro muscles around the eyes, make an ugly pinched face and then as you breathe out, through the mouth, very slowly release the muscles starting with the forehead and then uh, release the micro muscles around the eyes, spread out the cheeks, pull the corners of the mouth far apart, make the mouth as wide as you can and then release any clenching in the jaw. Good. Just spread out and soften. And then for our second full in-breath, lift your shoulders up, really like you're trying to touch your ears with them, you're trying to reach above your head with your shoulders. And then as you start to breathe out through the mouth, rotate the shoulders back and drop them. So you open up your chest, and then you make the arms fall as heavily as you can. Opening up the chest is a way directly to address this felt self, this core self, which is the, the way we feel. And then a, a third full in-breath through the nose and push out the belly like you're pulling in the breath through the nose by in, pulling it into your belly and then when you're ready to slowly breathe out through the mouth release and soften the belly and then from this point on try to focus on what we call abdominal breathing which is gently expanding, feeling the energy in the belly expanding and pulling upwards as you, as you breathe in and then very slowly with each long exhalation feel the abdomen softening, releasing.
So as I've been indicating, the longer the out-breaths, the more you engage the vagal break and uh, your parasympathetic vagal nerve releases acetylcholine, which essentially calms, lowers your blood pressure, lowers your heart rate, and switches you back to rest and digest, encourages the creation of white blood cells to help fight infection. When we're exercising or stressed out or in a state of hypervigilance and worry or thinking excessively about something, the sympathetic nervous system engages and the in-breaths become far more dominant. The blood pressure raises, heart rate raises, and we start producing red blood cells because we anticipate a physiological attack. So the most efficient way to restore your body to a state of uh, optimal homeostatic functioning is to just spend some time inclining your out-breaths to be really long, very smooth, softening the belly with each in-breath, keeping, and with each out-breath I mean, keeping the chest open, the face in a soft, neutral position, So just spend some time in silence, staying with this experience, trying to cultivate a state of presence and care, which is associated with having nowhere to go, nothing to do, no interest in things from our past or about our future. Like you're on the first morning of a vacation and you have no inclination to do anything. And just, you can hear the sounds feel the entire cosmos of sensations in your body. And whenever story, a memory, a plan, something about any concern that's not about right now, this moment, any thought about the past or the future or things that might be going on elsewhere. Any commentary about yourself. When any that any of that comes up and you become aware of it, one, that's great. In becoming aware of it, you're already outside of it. You're already on the journey back home to the present, to your felt experience, to a broader transcendent awareness. Every time we disconnect from that narrow self-concept, those stories, those fixed beliefs, those worries. You're coming
coming back home to a much greater experience. So it's to be celebrated, to feel good about it each time you become aware that you drifted away. Each time you realize it, just relax. Have a nice breath, a really soft release. Adjust your body to feel really comfortable. Try to create the feelings that are associated with relaxed presence, softening the belly, opening up the chest, keeping the muscles in the face relaxed.
like you now to bring to mind a recollection that you're in a room of other people and rather than maintaining any thought or story about what makes you different reflect on all that bonds and connects we're all in bodies that need food and shelter and sleep and warmth each of us at times needs care we each work from the same core universal palette of emotions at times worried, insecure, frightened, angry, at times excited, surprised, comfortable, elated, at times shocked, disappointed, disturbed, we all have known loneliness and we all have known feelings of connection. Beneath the identity beliefs, ideas, stories of achievement or failure. We're all experiencing this very similar fluid body states. Sometimes our stomachs feel uncomfortable. Other times our bodies feel strong. We all know pain. And we all know times when pain dissipates. in mind the sense of how much actually connects us to all the other people here. We're all here to some degree to seek some form of peace of mind, ease, relief from stress or from worry. See if while we have this recollection, if we can soften again the chest, the belly, the muscles in the face, inclining ourselves again to connect with that sense that we are a human being around other human beings. reflection to slowly dissipate and to transform into our sense of being in a body comprised of natural substances 
made of the earth, food, and that we are on an earth. We are all part of and expressions of the earth. Our bodies, everything that comprises us, just expressions of the earth, born of this world, depended on it to survive, and then one day we will all return to the basic substances. We are not separate from the earth. We are connected to it. There is nothing that sets our bodies apart from the earth. We are in no way different from it. space that surrounds us in all directions, left, right, above and below, front, back, on in endless directions we are all part of the same, as it were, universe, the space stretches through us in all directions. reflection in this meditation, the Kula Sunyata, is to reflect that we all, everything we've ever known, has ever occurred, has always existed within the consciousness or awareness that is the result of having a mind. Nothing will ever happen outside of that. And this awareness is known by all beings.
just for a moment, just relax into this perception of all that connects, that bonds, that unites, that reduces any sense of uniqueness or dissimilarity. So very, very, very slowly, at your own pace, just begin to look at the ground in front of you, and whatever feelings you might have connected with in this practice, if anything, try to just bring awareness of the felt self. The feelings of the moment rather than any stories with you into the next part of the evening. Uh, in giving this talk, I can create a, a kind of a false perception that for everyone it's equally easy to drop their identity uh, beliefs, their self-concepts. And that's not actually entirely true because obviously there are many of us who don't fit under white, cis, hetero, whatever, narrow confines where we don't have our identities constantly reflected back at us. They're members of our community that are part of the, you know, LGBTQ uh, community or are people of color or are uh, not able-bodied and everywhere they go very often they feel uh, a sense of being looked at with a sense of difference or you're not part of and so this practice of self-transcendence is not um, is not made under the assumption that it's all equally easy or that some of us have due to uh, the biases and prejudices of our world uh, it it's it's a it's a much tougher challenge I wanted to acknowledge that um, 